0: You know, the world has some very well-defined criteria for success. I mean, what are some of those things? Money, numbers, sales, depending on what industry you're in, quality, streamlined production, whatever it is, things that glisten and glamour, things that fill your bank account. But the question that we should have in the church is how should we evaluate excellence and success in ministry? How should we evaluate those things in a pastor? I was called up sometime a little bit over a year ago in April when I was living out in Wyoming to come to this church. And there were certainly criteria that the members of this church at that time had for what they were looking for in a pastor and how they would be evaluating my ministry, including how they are evaluating it going forward. But the question still remains, what should you expect from your pastor? What what really are their biblical duties? You now, The fact of the matter is that everyone has their opinions about what those things should be. But the Word of God gives some criteria right here in these five verses here of how to honestly evaluate me. I'm going to be opening myself up for evaluation from you. Things to expect. Things that really are the core of what someone who's been tasked with ministering the Word of God should be and should uphold and should do. But beyond that, I'm not just giving you things on which to evaluate me, which I'm certainly doing, but this should challenge all of us. So if you haven't already, turn to Second Timothy chapter 4, we're going to go through verses 1 through 5. We start out, it reads, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready, in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. We'll pause right there. So just to give a a recap, a summary of where we are in this book of 2 Timothy, Paul is rounding third base and he's heading home right here to close out this epistle. We've used sports analogies before, so why not? He's right there heading home. And he's not only heading home in this letter this isn't just the last chapter of this letter, but also he's round in third base and he's heading home in life, in his mission. Paul is writing from a cold, dark dungeon in Rome where he's on trial awaiting execution by the Roman Emperor Nero. He's writing to his younger colleague Timothy who is stationed in Ephesus to pastor and oversee the churches there. And so Paul right here is giving Timothy a final charge right here in the last words that Paul would ever pen on paper that are in our Scriptures. He's giving Timothy a final charge. And this final charge really summarizes Timothy's call to ministry. It summarizes what it really means and what matters for a pastor. But Paul, if you didn't catch it already, Paul also gives this charge in the strongest terms possible. So we start out, it says, I charge you, not, I I suggest that you do these things. I'll give you a little pointer here and there. No, I charge you. And the word for charge here means, it means a serious command. It means a forceful order. What it means is that Timothy is supposed to scrub the wax out of his ears or adjust his eyes as he's reading this and perk up, pay attention. So too should all of us. But this command, this charge is not just something the older, wiser, more experience Paul wanted to see in Timothy. No, this command comes from the direct commission of the one who commissioned Paul. That's why it says, in the presence of God. Now, the walls may be closing in all around Paul in that bleak prison cell. When we think of a Roman dungeon, that may seem like of all places on earth, like the furthest place away from God. But Paul knows that everything he's doing Everything he's writing here is orchestrated and under the watch and care and the sovereign hand of the creator of the universe. Everything in Paul's life, including even his imprisonment, is tuned perfectly, purposefully. It's directed. It's orchestrated. And Timothy here is reminded that everything he does, too, is in the presence of God. It's for God. It's seen by God. It's evaluated by God. And it's all enabled by God. You know, I, I know this seems simple, and it's something that we might just glance over when we read this, but it's so easy For us to get caught up in everything we're doing in life, the highs, the lows, the in-betweens, and everything we're doing in ministry, in service to the Lord, that we entirely forget what it's all about. Yes, even in this church. It's easy for us to do church and forget God. You might say, wait, what are you talking about? We have our ways that we do things, the way we want things to go, that we forget the point. We have our our comforts, and we forget why we're here. We have our order of service, our repetitions, things that all are in and of themselves can be good things, but we go through the motions, yet so often we miss that divine encounter that we should be experiencing in here and everywhere because we are in the presence of God. So I think it bears reminding to all of us that yes what we do is done in the presence of god but it's also done for him and he demands our excellence many of you who know me know that i worked a state job for the state of wyoming for years before the lord called me into ministry now one year in particular i'll always remember this it was right around christmas time i'm just sitting in my cubicle plunking away at a spreadsheet and then all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I see someone darken up the entry to my cubicle, and I look and see who it is, and lo and behold, it's the governor of the state of Wyoming. It's Matt Mead himself. He was just doing the rounds in the office buildings right there by the Capitol to, as a courtesy right around Christmas to wish all of the state employees a Merry Christmas and give them a handshake. Uh, he might have had an election coming up or something like that, too, that might have played a factor into it. But you know what went immediately through my mind when I saw him? Yes, it was, oh, this is cool to get to meet the governor in person. What immediately went through my mind was I am so glad that I was not taking a nap or doing a crossword puzzle or playing a game on my computer. I'm so glad that I was working because here it is, the boss of my boss's 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 boss who walks right in and all of a sudden I'm working in his presence. How much more so Everything that we eat, drink, do, breathe, sleep, everything is in the presence of our Creator and Savior. Then we see also, and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Yes, Christ sees it. It's for Him. It's for His glory. But lest we ever forget, we're also uniquely accountable to Him. We are subjects of His judgment. I mean, that that may even sound chilling to some. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that Christ is our judge too? those who have been saved? Well, before we get to that, you know, I've been asked by many people in the church throughout Doing ministry, not necessarily in this church, but also in this church and in other churches I've worked in, they say, Well, you know, we haven't known you that well for that long. How do we know that we can trust you on this? And honestly, I come back to this first. I respond, Well, I'm going to have to give an account to Jesus Christ for every word I say and for everything I do in ministry and as a pastor of this church. Don't you think I think about that? James chapter 1 verse 1 says james chapter 3 verse 1 excuse me says not many of you should become teachers my brothers for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness now look i i do care deeply about the feelings and the opinions of all of you that all of you have toward me i i hope i make that clear to you but You know, I I want to glean the the sentiments of this church and learn how I can best lead and serve the people that the Lord has been brought here. But no offense. Don't take any offense here. I care a whole lot more about how Christ the judge will judge my ministry when it's complete than how any other person, including even people in this church, will judge and evaluate my ministry. But we go back. What does that mean for a believer? that Christ will judge us? Well, the Bible gives three different types of judgment that Christ will conduct. The first is the Bema Seat judgment, and that is a judgment of believers, exclusively for believers. Then we have the sheep and the goats judgment where believers, the nations are judged, and believers will be separated out from unbelievers. And then there is the great white throne, the final judgment, which is of unbelievers. So in the context of a genuine believer Christ is not going to be judging you based on whether or not you have salvation and see if you do. No, He's already accomplished that for you. But He will judge you based on what you've done with the time that He's given you. He will judge me based on what I, I have done with the gifts and the time and the capacity that He's given me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, "...for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, when I think about this, we spend so much time worried about what other people think of us, don't we? Keeps us up late. we about it, maybe some of you don't struggle with that the way that others do, or the way that I do. But so many pastors too are preoccupied with what is their congregation going to think of of me, or about this, or even more so, what is the outside world going to think of us? No, this is the judgment that we should be concerned with. This is the judgment that we should concern ourselves with, and Christ is the standard, the only judge that matters. It's not a court of public opinion. It's a court of divine righteousness. And that is the judgment that we should be concerning ourselves with and motivated by. So a pastor is not ultimately accountable to a denomination, to a board, or even a congregation. I mean, Those things all may be helpful to keep a pastor accountable. And I'm accountable to all of you in many ways. And many of you hold me accountable. The elders of this church hold me accountable. But I'm ultimately accountable to the one who will one day judge the living and the dead. And so are all of us. 1 Corinthians 4, 4-5 four says, For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I mean, just just imagine with me for a moment if we lived our lives with Christ's evaluation of us at the forefront of our minds instead of the opinions of everyone else. Just imagine that. But Paul continues this charge to Timothy in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Now, are you getting a picture? We haven't even got to the charge yet that Paul is giving Timothy. But do you have a picture of how serious this charge is, this command? I mean, Christ's kingdom is coming. The king is returning I mean, what a motivation for whatever Paul is about to charge Timothy with. What a motivation for our work for the king. So Paul has prefaced the actual charge he's about to give Timothy, and he's prefaced it under the enormous, weighty, lofty preamble that we just walked through. Now, what does he actually charge him with to do as a pastor? Verse 2 says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season reprove rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So let's start out with that first part there it says preach the word. Now, I don't think that that part is a surprise to anyone. Of course a minister's commission is to preach. I don't think there was anyone in here or anyone who's ever been a part of a church or knows anything about churches that think that that's not something that a pastor is supposed to do. Now What's the difference between preaching and teaching? I mean, after all, preaching is teaching, but preaching only differs from teaching in that the word denotes a heralding. It's talking about a larger audience. So the word for preaching is the same word for when someone would come into a town and say, hear ye, hear ye, listen to this. It's a proclamation. It's given into a larger setting to a wider audience. But just like teaching, the content is to be the same. You know, Often when we read this verse, we may focus on that first word, the preach part, but not the next two words. What is a minister supposed to herald? What are they to preach? And that is the Word, the Bible, the whole counsel of God. If what you're hearing from a pulpit is not squarely rooted in the Word of God, then it is not faithful preaching no ifs and or buts if what you're hearing from the pulpit is not from the word of god then it is not faithful preaching i mean this is the reason why you will only ever hear me do expository preaching messages verse by verse chapter by chapter through books of the bible that's the only reason why because i'm commanded to preach the word Not what I want to cherry pick and pick and choose out of the Word to somehow formulate an idea or a thought for you guys to lift your spirits. No, God has something to say to us in His Word. God has something to say and you are much more benefited by me breaking down what God is saying and explaining what it means than by me cherry picking parts and pieces of the Scripture to fit what I'm trying to say. So preach the Word. Preach the Word even the parts that you or I may, may find uncomfortable. Preach the Word especially the parts that really challenge us and the idols in our hearts. Preach the Word even in the things, especially in the things that go completely athwart our culture that has rejected God. Preach the Word. After all, just a few verses back in last Sunday's message we cover it, we see that the Word is breathed out by God. The Word is what makes a man of God equipped and ready for every good work. So if you're not hearing preaching from the Word, if that's not what you're getting, then your pastor is not equipping you. At best, they might be entertaining you. At worst, they're boring you to death. But all the while, they're just polluting you with, with man's wisdom. So preach the Word. But Timothy is charged also to be ready in season and out of season. Be ready. I'm sure you all learned this back in uh in school and history classes, but you know why uh the American the New England colonial uh people were called Minutemen, why the militia were called Minutemen? It's because they had to be ready in a minute, in sixty seconds. Anytime there was a war threat from the British, they had to be able to respond ASAP. So whether they were eating or sleeping or resting, they had their gun nearby. They had all their provisions nearby. So whatever needed to be done at that moment, they would be ready to jump and to answer the call. And that's the idea that we get right here as a minister for Christ. A readiness at all times in season and out of season ready. Ready when it's comfortable ready when it's uncomfortable, ready when it's satisfying or when it's gratifying, and ready when it's not. Ready, of course, also when it's in vogue, when it's popular, and when it's not. So I guess the question is, when should a pastor be ready? Always. When should believers be ready? Always as well. Now, when we think of these seasons, be ready in season and out of season, we can think of them on a macro level. Like in season maybe would be times when the culture at large is genuinely, generally more receptive to the gospel, when there's no religious persecution. And then, of course, out of season would be in times of outright hostility and persecution. But think of this even on a micro level. On a micro level, it's certainly a lot more in season to encourage someone who needs to be lifted up than to rebuke someone who's living in unrepentant sin. It's a lot more in-season to minister the Word of God and uh, to someone's life when they want to listen versus when they don't. I think we have a lot of in-season Christians in this country. There are a lot of in-season churches, but the in-season is waning The leaves are about to change color and fall off the trees. The in-season is waning, and we must be ready in season and out of season. But in addition to preach the Word and to be ready, we see that Timothy is charged as a pastor to reprove, rebuke, and exhort here in verse 2. Now, before we break these down, I want to give a few observations. Just a few verses back, we covered this in last week's sermon there was something that we saw was useful for reproof, for rebuke, for exhortation, for, for training in righteousness. Remember, what is that? The Scripture, exactly. The Scripture. So again, you can't get away from this if it seems like I'm repeating myself. You can't get away with this. The very things that Timothy is commanded to do are the very things that Second Timothy 3.16 says that the Scripture is useful for. The word of God is profitable for the same things that we are commanded to do in ministry. So the word of God must be at the absolute center of any worthy ministry. And if the word isn't central to the ministry, then that ministry is not worthy and it is not a ministry. But another observation that I want to note here is when you think of a pastor or when you've thought of a pastor and You think of what, what it is their job is or what it is that they are tasked to do. And when you think about what you expect of a pastor, just, just think of all those things that you've culturally thought of in your mind or maybe you've personally held. Do you ever think of these three things? Do they ever cross your mind as that's the job of a pastor? I mean, sure, the preach part at the beginning of verse 2 we traditionally think of. Of course, that's maybe the main thing when someone asks you, what's a pastor's job? You say, oh, well, they, they preach. Preach the word? Even better. But in American churchianity, many think of the pastor as a sheep petter, as a comforter, as a hospital bedside visitor, as a greeter as an event coordinator, and a whole host of other things. Now don't get me wrong, those things may be very good or necessary from time to time. They may complete and round out a pastor's ministry. But how often do we think of and and expect a pastor to be a reprover, a rebuker, an exhorter? Even less, how many times do we want that? From our pastors. How many times do you say, Yeah, I, I I want my pastor to be looking in and offering me rebuke when they see sin in my life? And many times people are taken aback when a pastor would dare do any of these things, like reproof or rebuke. But we have right here these three critical components of pastoral ministry. Three things not only that I must be capable of doing, but three things that you all must expect from me. These are three things again that are in the final words from Paul to Timothy. The final words of Scripture he ever wrote that he commands of Timothy. And again, to break them down just so we know what what we're talking about here, reprove means to correct. It means to call out false doctrine. It means to correct false ways of thinking. Errant patterns of thought. It means to use the Scripture to correct those errant ways of thinking. Now, reproof deals with the mind. It deals with the intellect. It deals with reasoning with a person's mind and their mindset. But then we have rebuke, and rebuke deals with the heart. Rebuke is also correction, but it's to challenge someone in their sin and challenge them to examine their heart in order to bring them to repentance. But then we have exhort. Now, exhort means to put all of that together with the Word of God to compel someone to heart change. It means to encourage them, yes, but it's also a call to action. Not just to lift someone's head and cheer them up, but to spur them on to a meaningful response. So we have reprove, rebuke, exhort. But then the question is, how does a pastor do those things? And that's also equally important. It says to complete this verse, with complete patience and teaching. This is talking about patience with human beings. After all, the church is human beings. about patience with people in the church. People who are stubborn. And we all are. It's about people who often don't initially want to hear the reproof to the wrong thinking that they may have. Or even less, they don't want to hear a rebuke it's coming alongside one another. Coming alongside one another and shepherding requires patience. Let me tell you, this, this can often be really hard. When we see something, and I'm sure you all can relate to this, when we see something clearly laid out in the Word of God, and we become deeply convinced of it and convicted of it, it becomes self-evident to us. When we embrace it as truth, we see it all around us. The Word of God says so. I've embraced it in my life. It is. And that's because it is truth. But we have a hard time understanding how other believers can't understand it and see what we're clearly seeing. It's like, how are you not getting this? I think this makes sense. But it requires humility to realize that we didn't see it the first time either. We didn't get it. I didn't understand or get it the first time. It requires humility to recognize all the times that God was teaching me something over and over and over and was patient with me. And with teaching, with instruction, again, yet another thing, uh, chapter 3, verse 16 says the scripture is profitable for is teaching. You know, there's no way to convict a sinner or to exhort a believer or to unify a church body without. Sound teaching from the Word of God. So now, Timothy has already seen the immediacy of this charge that Paul has given him. He's saying, Christ is judging the living and the dead. Christ is coming. This is an immediate charge. But we see Paul even illustrate the need for faithful pastors even further by the perils of these times that we live in. So we read in verses three and four, it says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now That's a pretty self-explanatory set of verses right there, what it means, right? I mean, I'm sure all of you can even see examples of this around us. The time is coming. The time is already here. Many people no longer want to hear solid teaching. They may say they do, but they don't. Instead, they're going to try to find people who will tell them what they want to hear. They'll find them teachers who suit their own passions. They'll find preachers who promise you health and wealth and sugar and spice and everything nice in Jesus Christ. They'll find Teachers and preachers who glom onto whatever popular moral or social message of our day that our culture is trumpeting. I'll find preachers who affirm you, affirm your sin, affirm your false identity, affirm whatever lie it is that you want to believe. You can find teachers who will coddle you and make you feel good about yourself, even the things that are destroying you. In that kind of teaching, let's be clear that kind of teaching that denies the truth of God and affirms your own passions, your own self-destruction, that is the antithesis of love. That's the opposite of love. In fact, it's the most malevolent, the most deceptive, the most destructive kind of message you can be receiving, especially from someone who claims to speak the Word of God. But it's important to remember that God measures success and excellence in very different terms than humans do, especially in ministry. Because, I mean, there are very large churches. There are denominations with tons of money, even here in Madison, that are large and they're full of money and full of people because they tell people with itching ears what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear. You know, it's... In our flesh to want our ears to be tickled. It's in our flesh to want to be affirmed in everything, even the things that are destroying us. And we don't always like that personal trainer or that dietician who looks at us and tells us that we're unhealthy and we need to shape up, right? The world wants to listen to influencers and politicians and celebrities and teachers and even preachers who affirm them by telling them what they want to hear. But the Bible is clear. It tells us we're sick. It tells us we need a Savior. If you only want to hear what you want to hear instead of the truth and what you need to hear, then you will find someone who will tickle your ears. You'll find a preacher who will do so. You'll find teachers who will do so. You'll find a YouTube channel that will affirm whatever you want to believe about yourself or about the world or about ethics and morality. It takes the Holy Spirit within you to bring us to the realization that you know what? I don't desire to hear what makes me feel good. I need to be convicted by the Word of God. I, I pray that I never tell you what your flesh wants to hear. I pray that all of you are here because we will tell you what you need to hear there's a lot of demand for empty self-affirming teaching and there's ample supply but timothy is called to be different we're called to be different as verse 5 says as for you always be sober-minded endure suffering do the work of an evangelist fulfill your ministry as for timothy As for a faithful pastor, you don't wander off into myths. You don't promote what's ever popular or whatever tickles fickle ears. Instead, be sober-minded. It means to be watchful. Think clearly. Pay attention. Have your eyes open. Exercise discerning self-control of your mind and think clearly about things. About what you say. About what you're hearing. About what you're promoting. What you're presenting also says endure suffering now notice the command here is not go out and suffer you know go try to find a way that that you can suffer because somehow suffering is good in and of itself now what it's saying is you will face hardship hardship will find you but the command is to endure it i mean we know that the apostle paul has suffered a lot for the sake of proclaiming christ in his life And these words will prepare Timothy for what he himself will face. In fact, just to provide some context, at the very end of of the book of Hebrews, we learn that Timothy himself was imprisoned, but later released. But beyond that, we know from chapter 3 of 2 Timothy of what we just read, that all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will face persecution. It's the duty of a faithful servant of the Lord to be ready for that suffering, and when it comes, to endure it. And it says, do the work of an evangelist. Now notice here that Paul isn't calling Timothy an evangelist. He's not even saying that Timothy has the unique spiritual giftedness of an evangelist. Yet what it is saying is that Timothy, as a pastor, it's still your duty to do the work of an evangelist. Obviously, a pastor's first focus is on equipping his own congregation. It's equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. It's about building up and teaching the Word to the people within your midst. But we should never neglect the lost around us. We should never use the priority of our own congregation and those in our midst as a shield from ever engaging with the lost world around us. They need the Gospel. Now, some People are uniquely gifted as evangelists. They have a gift of evangelism, just as some have a gift of exhortation or teaching or encouragement or hospitality. In fact, Philip was specifically referred to as an evangelist in the book of Acts. But this is a call of every Christian. It's a call, especially of a pastor leading by example, to be a witness for Christ. To be ready, as the Scriptures say, to give a defense for the hope that is within us. And it's the job of every faithful pastor to when the time allows to faithfully proclaim the Gospel of Jesus Christ and how man can be saved by belief in Jesus Christ and His atoning death on the cross for our sins and His resurrection. But then it says to bring it all on home. Fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. That's a pretty broad term, but it's just saying do what needs to be done. Do what needs to be done and what God has given you unto doing until your assignment on earth is up. And we're going to read next week that Paul's ministry is just about to be fulfilled. He's fought the good fight. He's finished the race. His race is nearly complete. But you know, it's easy for us to leave our calling unfulfilled it's easy to be sidelined by discouragements by setbacks by apparent lack of progress of not seeing things going the way we thought they would go of course by trials and hardships and things in life that get in our way and of course also by fear by criticism by negative thinking and of course as well by all the distractions of the world the cares of the world, the joys and pleasures of the world, it's easy to be set back and leave our commission and our ministry unfulfilled. But it's important to remember, just as I started out, that the world's standards of excellence are so different from the standards of the one who created the world. Instead, we are called to be faithful and to fulfill what God has given us to do in the time that he's given us today. This afternoon, this week, this year, for the rest of your life until your race is complete, until he returns or he calls you home to glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to all sit and learn from your word. Lord, I pray that all of us, each person here, myself included, would deeply take our conviction and a calibration of our way of thinking from the word that your holy spirit would work in each one of us that we would evaluate success in ministry in this local church in the people leading and serving in this local church in, in myself and everything that we would evaluate success not based on the world's standards or not based on our own standards but lord that we would solely rest in you and at all times remember that it is jesus christ who will judge the living and the dead, and with our eyes focused on Christ, with his evaluation for us at the forefront of our minds. Lord, give us the energy and the strength. Spirit, enable us to do the work that you set before us to do today, tomorrow, this week, this year, until you return or call us home. We give you all the glory. In Christ's name, amen.